Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We had some good numbers out of Home Depot uh, and Walmart. Uh, apparently, there's stuff on the shelves to buy, but I know a lot of people are concerned about the supply chain as we head into this all-important holiday season. Let's get a sense of kind of where we are there. Uh, Lisa Chai, Senior Analyst at Robo Global. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we had some good numbers out of Home Depot and Walmart this morning, um, but a lot of people continue to be very concerned about the supply chain challenges out there on a global scale. What's your take on kind of where we are with that issue? Yes, definitely. Um, supply chain disruptions that we're hearing about is really nothing new. And unfortunately, things may worsen before they really improve. Um, as consumer demand overall really seems really unstoppable heading into the holiday season. And obviously, the pandemic highlighted that we have major bottlenecks within the supply chain. And um, keep in mind that we have really bigger problems than just overall the holiday season. Uh, we have obviously great innovations and technologies that can keep up with all this change and help with some major issues. But Improving the supply chain is a really complicated one. You have to consider uh, export, import, supply chain network within the manufacturing process to online and in-store merchandise management, and also the logistics and then transportation issues throughout this entire process. Yeah. So, and you also have to consider uh, reverse logistics. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to deal with. How long until um, we've dealt with it? Right. I mean, it's, it seems like if you want to return an item, your retailers are just struggling with that. The shipping cost is high. I think Home Depot and Walmart had great you know, results because they prepared um, probably most of this year. They learned a lot from the last you know, 12, 18 months, and they came into um, this important holiday season with enough uh, people that they hired, um, laborers, and as well as merchandise. They're fully stocked. That's what the Walmart CEO just said, right? For the most retailers, they're still struggling. Uh, we're obviously not having enough merchandises that consumers want. And then shipping costs and transportation costs is really eating up the margin. So, so these- I think that the supply chain process is it's not broken, but it's definitely a, a bigger problem than just the holiday season. So how about the, the the other issue that we're hearing a lot about, Lisa, not just from the retailers, but just, you know, uh, corporate America in general, which is kind of the, the labor shortage. I mean, you know, to what extent is that going to be a continuing issue for, you know, some of the retailers in, in general, but just kind of corporate America? I mean, it, this seems to be, uh, you know, one of the really fascinating outcomes of this pandemic. And, and, the and I noticed it everywhere, yeah. by the way. So I was in a... Um, Dick Sporting Goods the other day, and there were lines all the way down the aisle because they only had a few people to check out. Then I went into a yard house, which was delicious, um, but <laughs> the wait was very long, and there were a lot of empty tables. I asked the manager why, and he said, I don't have enough staff to bust these tables. Yeah, And, and that's just keeping that's keeping revenue down. That's hurting their business. Is that a long-term issue, yeah. Lisa? It's definitely a long-term issue, and it's, it's hitting, I think it's, near-term, mid-term, long-term issues. And I think that aside from the fact that these these jobs are 
are really brutal, right? It can be very dirty. Uh, it's a very manual labor process, working in some of the warehouses or being a truck driver today. Um, and also working in restaurants, I think it's, the, it's definitely the wage problems. So the wage growth is going up, obviously, and uh, retailers are trying to manage and, and navigate through this. And we are, it's going to hit the consumers, obviously, because we have to pass on some of the costs. So this is a big issue with some of the workers not wanting to do this. Turnover at uh, places like Amazon is super high. So we think that there are some solutions to this. Right, because we have some machine vision technologies and autonomous forklifts and robotic arms for packing and unpacking. So there are solutions that technology could help. Um, it's just a matter of retailers really embracing it and using outsourcers and service providers that could really help them um, fill the needs that they really need, whether it's near term or longer term. Which because which retailers, issues. Lisa? Which retailers are doing the best and which ones are doing the worst? I don't need you to. Give me brands unless you want, but I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of um, uh, classifications. Yeah, I think I think uh, Wayfair is one of the uh, companies that have probably one of the better supply chain e-commerce. Which is like an um, online home goods or a catalog exactly. home goods yeah. business. Yeah, and they're yeah. expanding. Um, IKEA, uh, obviously, companies like Amazon has really embraced technology. Walmart's really getting there as well. Um, I would say every retailer at this point has to increase their capex and spending around warehouse automation and, and improving their supply chain. They have to. There's no choice, right? Because their margins are, are declining. Uh, you have major uh, secular headwinds coming at them, whether it's uh, the labor shortage or the wage growth or supply chain um, shipping costs. So it's, it's a, we need a real major probably uphaul of the entire supply chain process, but we have to start somewhere. Yep. Um, so we, we do think that we're very bullish on, on robotic companies and automation companies. And, and also, if you could in, in, implement it with AI capabilities, we think, right. we think some of the technology solutions could really help the process. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective here. Lisa Chai, uh, she's a senior analyst at Robo Global, getting some thoughts on uh, supply chain and retail as we get some of these uh, pretty good retail numbers. You know, one of the, I think, more interesting economic fallouts from this pandemic has been the great resignation, as some people are talking about. And a lot of folks kind of left, they kind of, they left the workforce. They haven't come back. Where'd they go? I don't know. They're not on the trains with me in the morning. They're not on the subways with me in the morning, but we'll have to see. Tom Gimble, he's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. They do this kind of job stuff. Tom, again, I don't know if it's 4 million, 5 million, 6 million folks that are not on the payrolls today that were pre-pandemic. Where are they? Well, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, number one, I'm glad to hear you're taking the train again. So that's I a am. Good thing. Uh, no, number one, I would say that Goldman Sachs just, I don't know if you read the article, they just released a study that showed that two and a half million people that have left the workforce were baby boomers that either retired or took early retirement during the pandemic. And for a variety of reasons. And those people, they conclude, are not coming back. So when you're looking at, at almost 50% of the people that have retired, that, that is one uh, example, one excuse for where they've gone. Secondarily, you look at it and you've got COVID.
re-entered the workforce as a result of of making sure that they're home for their kids and, and doing those things. And then lastly, because of the, the, the hangover from COVID, even as it, as it uh, dissipates, that restaurants and the service jobs still haven't come back at 100%. And if you combine those three things, uh, I think that's a fairly good example of where the people have gone. It's so interesting. Um, first of all, I want to say hangovers, when you're older, they take a lot longer to recover from. I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> um, it's so interesting that uh, this labor shortage is hitting, um, you know, retail numbers as well and hitting the bottom line of companies. H- how hard is it to get employees in now? What do, what do employers have to do? It's it's more than just raise wages, isn't it? Yeah, the, the wages are, are really only an aspect. What, what the rate, When companies are raising wages now it's really to fight off defection of people leaving their companies and going for more money. Where raises used to be given as a reward, as an emerit increase of saying, job well done, we want to keep you happy and we're going to give you more. Now it's the numbers are so staggering from competitors and other companies that you've got to do it in advance to, to keep people. And I haven't seen numbers like that in a long, long time, both hourly and salaried levels. Uh, of that happening. You know, what, what companies are realizing, though, is it's more than money. And you've got two sides of the coin. I think companies are afraid that employees only want to work remotely. And thus, they're letting the inmates run the asylum, so to speak, and bending over backwards to make everybody happy working from home, whether that may or may not be best for the company or, quite frankly, for the individual's career path. And then the other side of the of the coin is that human beings, professional human beings, um, they want to be challenged and they want to achieve goals. They don't, majority of them don't just want to do a job that studies show that our, our emotional satisfaction is tied to recognition and accomplishment. And the more people are, are working remotely, not in a team environment, not being challenged with tasks because companies don't challenge and tasks because companies don't want to lose people, you're seeing the, the disintegration of, of the, the fabric of corporate culture. By the way, Tom, you know, we uh, talk to you always about these labor issues because the company you founded and run is one of the uh, leading staffing companies in the country. What does this mean for your business? What's, what's, it, what's it like operating LaSalle right now? Well, knock on wood, it's been the best year of the company's history. So we've grown for, for, we grew for 22 years in a row. Last year, we dipped by 8% with COVID. And this year, we're up over 45% over last year and 35% over 2019. So this has been great for us. However, um, I think that with the infrastructure bill coming, uh, the, that that's a good sign for the economy. My belief is that things are going to continue at this pace for the next couple of years. Uh, I'm very optimistic about the economy, that there are people entering the workforce from uh, college graduates and people realizing that the government subsidies aren't coming back. And then, and then lastly, you're going to see with the Delta not erupting into what people were afraid it would, that with COVID dissipating and, and life getting back to normal, everybody's going to return to the workforce. I think it's going to be really good for the economy for the next 24 to 36 months. Tom, are people going to come back to the office five days a week anymore, or is that really a thing of the past? My belief in talking to the CEOs and VPs of HR that we deal with every day, week, month, so to speak, is that I think my belief is that 
Fridays will become remote Fridays the way casual Fridays became casual Fridays. That there'll always be some industries or companies that'll be in the office five days a week, but that the majority of companies will have remote Fridays. And you'll see the the majority of companies will be in the office four days a week with a good percentage three days a week. By the way, uh, Paul, did I tell you about Flannel Friday? You mentioned this Friday, but I'm not, I'm not This Friday, it. and Critty's in here too, I want everyone to wear flannel shirts. It's my last day in the You're New York office. You're just assuming we all own a flannel shirt. I know you own a flannel <laughs> shirt, dude. You, you got to be kidding me. Sells a flannel shirt. I don't know. Well, that's not bad. Four days a week in the office, Tom. Um, I'm guessing that's better not than bad. probably not Paul bad. expected when he asked. I mean, I'm, I, from the from the from the perspective of old conservative guys like Paul Sweeney, yep. um, he wants kids at their desks, you know, grinding it out, or yep. on planes visiting clients. So. And I know that a lot of people are thinking maybe it's going to only be two or three days a week. But so four days a week, I think for Paul is that's good that's enough. Okay. Well, all it takes is is the market to drop and inflation to go up, and people will be bad. You want people five days a week? Wait until interest rates are at five, six, seven percent. Unemployment's back to seven, eight percent, and the stock market's down by fifteen or twenty percent. And then everything reverses and people will be in the office five days a week. Tom, just real quickly, immigration, legal and illegal, how much is that impacting the, the dearth of workers? Hugely, I think. It's something that's not talked about quite a bit, but you got to think back even before the Obama administration or the uh, Trump administration for the last year or two of the Obama administration, immigration was becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And when you stop it, uh, or stop it's a, an overstatement, but when you, when you make it such a, a spotlight on it, and it's become a bigger issue in, in not allowing people into the country from the southern border as aggressively, and then the H-1B visa problem, and not letting people in. It becomes a huge yeah. issue both on the H-1B on the IT side and uh, on the, the service sector, why we don't have enough people, is directly tied to those problems. Right, absolutely. All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We always yeah, appreciate great your thoughts and perspective on the labor market. Tom Gimbel, he's founder and CEO of LaSalle Network, LaSalle Network. Uh, kind of places people with jobs. So Tom's got a great, got his pulse, a uh, finger on the pulse of the labor market. Uh, again, trying to get folks back to work. Is it just higher pay? All right, we had some good consumer data points out this morning. Consumer spending for the month of October came in better than expected. Then, of course, the big dogs. Uh, Home Depot, Walmart reporting some really strong numbers, taking some guidance up. Uh, so the consumer seems to be in pretty good spot here. Let's check in with Jen Bartash. She's a senior analyst. She covers food retail, mass merchants, packaged food, pretty much everything on the retail space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mm. Uh, Jen, give us your takeaway. It looks like when I'm looking at the uh, Home Depot and the Walmart numbers, pretty good stuff there. Yeah, good morning, Paul. Um, it, things actually were a very solid quarter for Walmart. Um, Home Depot obviously had, had good results as well. Um, and it really does underscore the fact that the consumer does have money and they are spending. They're just spending it selectively right now. What are the concerns at, a, for example, a company like Walmart? They beat earnings expectations and the shares are down. Yeah, the stock is down today. Um, you know, and even though Walmart is very well positioned for the holiday, um, uh, you know, what we're really looking about and talking about here in comparison to the other retailers is it's a margin story. Um, you know, 
there's been long-term concern about Walmart's uh, well, it, its erosion of its margin over time, um, and some of the comments on the call today, you know, and the fact that Walmart is the last company out there to lo- to raise prices in an inflationary environment, kind of inflames some concerns about margin overall over the next quarter and into next year. Yeah, Jen, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Uh, looking at the margins here, I know, you know, from reading your research um, that. You know, top line is important, but you really got to focus, uh, you know, at the profit margin. You know, they're facing a lot of issues, whether it's supply chain, whether it's higher labor costs. What are those two big companies telling us about their margins going forward? Well, there's certainly some expectation that a lot of these pressures are going to continue through the fourth quarter, um, which is a huge holiday uh, quarter for all of retail, and into next year. Um, when you're looking at supply chain, um, there there are some structural issues that are going to take a little bit longer to overcome. So things like transportation costs, um, you know, those are things that are going to take time to work out of the system. So we're anticipating seeing some of this pressure coming from the supply chain lingering uh, well into next year um, and affecting these companies. And so it really comes down to strategy on how well they can manage um, other costs to help offset that pressure. What's the difference in terms of scale? Looking at a Home Depot and looking at a Walmart, I imagine, I think of Walmart as this like supply chain Goliath that can just, you know, wield in tremendous power. And Doug McMillan did say fighting inflation is in our DNA. But can they really do something about it? Well, it's it's a good question, Matt. And, and when you when you really look at Walmart's scale, um, they have been leveraging that scale to be able to increase their inventory, which is up almost 12% going into fourth quarter. Um, they're able to force things through the system to a degree that some smaller players can't do. Um, and we expect that that capability will continue. But they are also investing in expanding their capacity in supply chain um, so that it they have more flexibility going forward. And that's going to be an important part of their story as they try to you know, do more in terms of third-party fulfillment, sort of like uh, Amazon does with some of their marketplace customers. Um, so it's a story that's in progress, um, and we're watching it unfold. Jen, are people going back to the stores, or have they just, you know, since the pandemic said, I can do pretty much everything from my couch with a click of the mouse or just the app? People are actually going back to stores. Um, And if you looked and you broke down the same store sales numbers from Walmart today, for example, um, traffic into stores is positive. It's up um, over almost 6% in the U.S. for Walmart um, in the last quarter. And with all of the supply chain concerns and the news that you see about, you know, potential delays for shipping, um, especially around the holiday period, we're expecting that in the fourth quarter that consumers will be going into stores a lot to do their holiday shopping, just so that they're sure that they have the goods that they want to be able to gift. Are, 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 is Walmart getting all the stuff? I mean, are, there, are they having real problems getting certain things in there? Well, I think that there are some hiccups along the supply chain for all retailers, and there are some products that are um, inherently um, a little less stable than others. So when you talk about, especially on the grocery side, um, things like fresh produce, um, you know, it's harder to make sure that everything gets to the stores as fresh as possible in this current environment. Um, but what we're seeing is that there are generally things in stock. Um, it's just a question of how quickly they're going to be able to replenish as demand starts to rise. So, Jen, we have uh, tomorrow we have Lowe's, Target, we have TJ Maxx, or as it's known in Europe, TK Maxx. Really? <laughs> Oddly. <laughs> okay. um, we've got Ross stores coming up. I mean, how does this earnings season, how do you think it's going to pan out given what we've seen today? 
Well, based on what we've seen so far, um, you know, there's reason to be optimistic about how the results are, are going to play out over the next week or so. Um, you know, consumers are still very focused on value. And you talk about some of the names that you mentioned, whether it's TJX, um, you know, Target. Um, you know, these companies, you know, play to that value segment in different ways. Um, and, and people define value differently, but, but we see that that's resonating. So that should bode, should bode pretty well for earnings. Jen, thanks so much. Remember, all the way back to last week, we had in Glasgow, Scotland, COP26, talking about the future of energy. And quite frankly, I'm not sure what really came out of that, but I want to ask an expert here, and we'll do that with Seth Gray, President and Chief Executive Officer of Lightbridge Corporation. Seth, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we've got a little bit of benefit of some hindsight here, but as we look back to COP26, what are the key takeaways that, that you made? Was anything of substance achieved you know, there was little of substance achieved in terms of a formal agreement, which agreed to phase down coal instead of the original goal of phase out coal. That's a new but phrase, by the way, phasing down. I used it at dinner phase. last night, and everybody How'd was that surprised. Work? Okay. No yeah, one knew what I, mean, I meant. You sound like you're at Davos or something. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I think that what came out of it, though, was a real search for what are the alternatives as we do phase down and phase out coal and other fossil fuels, what are we going to do? And, you know, we've seen in the news today that Germany announced suspension of certifying the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to bring in natural gas from Russia. What are they going to do? Uh, you mentioned before fueling up your Ford F-150. It's almost like buying a new car every time you fuel it up now at these prices of gasoline. And you know, part of what we have to do, and I just got back from an international trip where I heard a lot about this in several countries, is grow nuclear power. Yeah. That nuclear power is almost immune from these price spikes, from this inflation in energy prices. But why Why don't we? You know, I, I was um, really impressed when I watched the Bill Gates documentary on netflix and they're they're one of those it's a three-part series don't know if everyone's seen it one of them is pretty focused on nuclear and um he is making the case that we're we're, we're at a stage of development now where you no longer have to worry about something like fukushima it's incredibly safe and in fact he can even use spent fuel um to power new uh uh, uh new facilities so you don't need to to worry as much about the waste either. What are what's stopping us, um, Seth, from building more? Is it just the initial costs? Are they so huge? Well, they used to be uh, to build these giant reactors. But what Bill Gates is talking about, what we at Lightbridge are talking about, are these new, smaller, cheaper reactors, and you know, cost much, much less to to build. Uh, don't you know, um, have the financial risk to nearly the, the degree of the giant plants. And at Lightbridge, we're also designing and with U.S. government support testing new fuel that will make the existing plants much more economical and much safer, mm. run a thousand degrees Celsius cooler in the reactors and, you know, produce zero CO2. So I think what Bill Gates is doing with new advanced kinds of reactors is great, but none of them exist yet. We look forward to them existing, and we look forward to Lightbridge helping to fuel some of the new reactors that will come out. 
but also companies like Lightbridge that, that will bring new fuels, new technology, these new safety advances to the existing reactors as well. All right. So let me ask you this. Have you spoken with Angela Merkel or Olaf Scholz? Because in a country where the Green Party has gained a pretty exceptional amount of power, they're still burning like the dirtiest coal on the planet, mm-hmm. and they would rather pay um, through the nose— for dirty fuel than used nuclear reactors. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of politics there with the Green Party in Germany holding that coalition together to stay in power. And they're totally wrong. You see this combination of three things in Germany. They have some of the dirtiest energy production in the world. They have some of the most expensive energy production in the world. And they like to brag the most that they have the greatest energy plan in the world. And it's just not working. You can't shut down nuclear and avoid having energy prices spike and having CO2 and pollution spike. And Germany's just the perfect example of it. Seth, where are we in the United States as it relates to nuclear energy? Is there support? Is, there, is it an economic issue? Or is it just some fundamental, that's just not the path that we want to go? Yeah, you know, it's somewhere in the middle that most Americans do support having nuclear power in the country. It provides about 20% of the electricity, but much more than half of all clean power of zero CO2, zero pollution power. And it is growing. There are two large reactors under construction in in, um, Georgia. There's a new small reactor that'll start construction in in Idaho, and there's talk of adding some to coal plant sites in in Montana and in other parts of of the West and Midwest, which I think makes a lot of sense, putting these small reactors on sites that would have coal plants that shut down. Good for employment, good for keeping the connection to the electrical grid, trained workforce, et cetera. And I think a lot of the growth in nuclear in this country will come from smaller reactors at former coal sites as the years go by. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, getting your thoughts on yeah, really interesting global stuff. energy, yeah. nuclear. It's a conversation, uh, you know, as we see energy prices fluctuate that continues to come to the fore. Seth Gray, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Lightbridge Corporation. I'm looking at WTI crude oil right here. It's pretty steady today, but just under $81 I will, per I barrel. will point out uh, the F-150 that I'm driving is a 36-gallon tank. Nice. That's which is the, why that will set you back. Which a is why shows. it cost me about two hundred bucks to fill it up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller nineteen seventy three. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.